0: Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time for an episode from The Vault. This one originally published March 22nd, 2022, and it's called The Beast Wore an Apron, Part 1. This was the first entry in a series on non-human animals uh, doing things analogous to cooking or otherwise kind of doing meal prep in some
1: way. Yeah, do animals cook? Well... The answer is probably not no, because we talked about it for two hours. So (laughs) join in uh, on the fun.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be starting on a series that has to do with animal feeding behaviors, but specifically what comes before the feeding itself. Uh, I got into this topic by wondering about a simple question, and it was, are there any animals other than humans that cook their food? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if if you look at the relationship that humans have with food versus the at least obvious relationships that we can see on the surface level between most wild animals and their food – there were some pretty stark differences. So you know, you you watch like a a grazing herbivore mammal that's eating grass or eating leaves. It doesn't seem like they're putting the vegetation through any kind of external processing. It's just there in the environment. They bite it, they chew it, and they swallow it. Uh, though once they swallow it, of course, if you're talking about like. Uh, you know, ruminant mammals or something. Plenty of interesting things happen to the food after it has been uh, processed, say, by the teeth in the mouth. There might be multiple different interesting stages of digestion. But in that first stage, before the food reaches the mouth, there's not really anything complex going on. There's just some material in the environment that has nutritional value. The animal comes within reach of that food. They bite it. They chew it up. They swallow it. They, they just eat it. And if you compared that to all of the sometimes mind-bogglingly complex stages of manipulation, combination, and alteration of raw plant and animal materials that go into making a standard human meal, even meals that we would perceive as kind of simple, like if you think about all of the pre-processing and alteration that goes into the foods that make a cheeseburger, the difference is overwhelming.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, even if you're – I mean, you can go even simpler than that, I guess. If you, even if you just you don't even take into account, say, meat, because meat processing, especially uh, something like a hamburger, uh, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of grotesque details that go into that. But <laughs> but just like thinking about, yeah, like the bread. Uh, the, the the you know the, the the vegetables even you know being pre- prepared the various sauces I mean all the things that go into it uh, it's 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 quite a lot and yeah coming back to what you said earlier that we we think about animals we think about purely internal food processing and 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 human uh, cuisine human cooking uh, is the externalization of various processes um, things that uh, that that. we we tend to imagine, generally only take place within the bodies of animals. We found ways to do them externally uh, to give our internal digestion a break uh, as well as to make things that are otherwise inedible, edible.
0: Exactly right. And of course, the central idea, the thing that most people think about when you say the word cooking, is uh, the narrow sense of cooking, meaning causing chemical and structural changes to food, by the application of heat, specifically Mm -hmm. heating. Uh, This is one of the most common ways of processing food before we eat it, and this does exactly the things you're talking about. It takes foods that would not otherwise be edible to humans and makes them edible, or makes them safe to eat, or increases the availability of nutrition from the same uh, starting quantities of food. So you take a mass of raw food, you cook it, you can usually increase its nutritional efficiency. You can get more nutrition out of it. And so to come back to the question of are there animals that cook, I would say based on my research, if you're talking about on their own in the wild, it appears that the answer is no in that narrow sense of cooking, meaning cooking by applying heat. It seems that humans are the only animals that do that in a consistent way, that we can talk about a few interesting wrinkles to that generalization in a minute. But... When it comes to the broader sense of cooking, which is, you would imagine, anything that people would do in a restaurant kitchen or in a home kitchen, any way that people manipulate food or prepare meals other than by applying heat – It turns out non-human animals do all kinds of fascinating things to their food before consuming it along these lines. And so that's what I wanted to talk about in this series. What do animals do that could be construed as cooking in one way or another, even accepting that no animals in the wild cook their food with heat?
1: Well, with the exception of the ratatouille phenomenon, by which a a rat (laughs) – uh, once exposed to culinary traditions in an urban environment, will then begin to cook itself, um, to uh, to actually uh, copy the various recipes that are around it, improve upon those recipes, and sometimes crawl on top of a man's head and pull his hair to use said human as a puppet uh, to move around the kitchen and prepare, um, you know, fine works of uh, French cuisine or yes, Italian cuisine. I, I, can't recall. No, how. it was it was, it was French cuisine. Was it French, French cuisine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. The, the ratatouille itself. Yes. But it begs the question: Is this? Is this? Do we see this only with French cuisine, or uh, does the ratatouille phenomenon um, repeat itself in various other cultures?
0: Uh, it, animals can only be trained to make sauces that are heavy in dairy. So yeah, it mm-hmm. is a French thing. Okay. But no, that's a good point because actually, by raising ratatouille, you, you point out that I think. You could quite clearly find plenty of examples of animals that have been trained in some sense to cook. Now, uh, they're probably never going to be as versatile as a human cook, but I'm sure you can find tons of examples of an animal that somebody trained to go turn on the microwave or something like that, uh, you know, to, to, to boop at the oven knob with their nose until it comes on or, or something along those lines.
1: And then, of course, there's the whole area of – uh, animals that are willing to benefit from cooking without having done it themselves, uh, like I, I once saw a seagull grab a hot dog off of off of a grill at the beach. Um, you know, the, the seagull was not it, itself barbecuing, but it was it was more than happy to benefit from the barbecuing.
0: Well, that is a great point, and that actually feeds right into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. So before in this series we get into examples of animals doing some kind of cooking in the broader sense, meaning uh, you know preparing foods before they eat them in some way that doesn't involve the direct uh, uh, application of heat, I do want to talk about cooked food in the narrower sense, food that has been heated. And one interesting place I thought to start there would be with the question – In general, would non human animals actually prefer cooked food uh, over the raw foodstuffs that they would encounter in their natural environment? And it turns out there have been some studies that looked into this, and in some cases, there is a clear answer. So, I wanted to start by looking at a paper published in the year 2008 in the Journal of Human Evolution by Victoria Waber, Brian Hare, and Richard Rangham called Great Apes Prefer Cooked Food. Uh, now, part of the background of this paper is based in the exploration of an idea that's come up in passing on the show a couple of times before. We've never actually devoted a full episode or series to it. Maybe someday we will, but it's what is known as the cooking hypothesis. And to summarize it briefly, the cooking hypothesis is the proposition that the advent of cooking was a major contributor to the physiological evolution of the ancestors of homo sapiens in other words that a lot of things about the bodies of modern human beings are the way they are because our primate ancestors figured out how to control fire and how to cook their food by applying heat to it now you might wonder well how could our bodies be changed in an evolutionary sense by the invention of cooking Uh, Well, essentially, it would happen by changing the pressures present in our nutritional regimes. So I think proponents of the cooking hypothesis usually argue that because cooked food is more nutritionally efficient, uh, again, meaning that if food is cooked, you, you take a food item, you eat it raw versus you eat it cooked. In the cooked version, you can get more nutrition from it with less chewing, less energy spent on digestion and so forth. Um, So if suddenly eating and absorbing nutrition becomes easier and more efficient, we have to spend less time chewing, we have to spend less time gathering large quantities of food, the types of food we can eat safely is expanded, and uh, we have to spend less energy developing large powerhouse digestive tracts and so forth. So perhaps other adaptive pressures fill the void, including bigger brains and so forth. And I think one proposed causal mechanism is that Once cooking is invented, we can get more nutrition from the same amount of uh, environmental material. Suddenly, the carrying capacity of the local environment then is larger. There can be more humans per tribe, which requires bigger brains in order to maintain relationships with that larger number of humans. Uh, The main figure behind the cooking hypothesis is a British primatologist, and I I think – he either is now, or it was at some recent point. Was at Harvard, uh, named uh, Richard Wrangham, and he wrote a book laying out this argument in two thousand nine called "Catching Fire: How Cooking Made Us Human." Wrangham is also one of the authors of this paper about whether apes prefer cooked food, and I- I'm not going to go into uh, all of the pros and cons, the arguments for and against the cooking hypothesis, I would just say that m- my personal evaluation at a, at a cursory reading of it is that it looks like it's kind of in the, the middle zone. It's one of those arguments that seems to have a, a lot of interesting things going for it, but it also doesn't line up all that well with the best existing evidence about the timeline for the control of fire by human ancestors. So uh, I don't know. I, I'd say it's, uh, it, it's interesting, but far from conclusive. But regardless of what we think about the the evolutionary effects of cooking on our direct ancestors, pointing out the theoretical background uh, helps us see why the researchers performed the experiments described in this paper. So the authors of this paper begin raising a relevant question, which is that if you were to walk up to one of our ancestors roughly two million years ago, maybe to a a member of the species Homo erectus, and you offered them cooked food – Are we sure that they would like it or that they would prefer it to the same
1: food in its uncooked state? You mean like like a hot pocket? If you brought a hot pocket (laughs) to one of our our ancestors, what would they make of it? And then how would they react?
0: I I feel quite certain that somebody who showed up with a hot pocket would be regarded as a worker of of evil magic. (laughs) But anyway, I mean, I think this is a a worthwhile question to ask because we know that there are lots of types of food that – we would probably rather eat cooked than raw. Maybe lots of, you know, and this would vary person to person, but probably most people would rather eat grain, tough vegetables, most meats and so forth in their cooked state. But it's possible that's just a cultural preference. So, you know, we like cooked food maybe because we're used to it. Is there any way to test this out? And the authors here say, well, obviously not with archaic hominins. But an interesting analog would be to offer both cooked and raw versions of the same food to great apes, our closest living relatives, and see what their preferences are. So that's what this study looked into. So uh, experiment number one, they were like, hey, let's try some tubers. Let's get together some carrots, some sweet potatoes, and some white potatoes and offer them to chimpanzees in a choice task that exposes them to both and then allows them to pick between the cooked and raw forms. And they found, uh, in the case of carrots and sweet potatoes, the chimpanzees definitely liked the cooked version better. On the other hand, it was interesting. The white potato was more of a toss up. The authors noted that, uh, many chimps seemed kind of hesitant to take the initial samples of both cooked and raw white potatoes. And it was, uh, it was basically there was no difference in their preference between the two. Which seems surprising to me because, like, I love raw carrots. The cooked carrots are good, too. But I cannot imagine wanting to eat a raw potato. No, no. Uh, But the author said, well, maybe the uh, chimpanzees are just kind of iffy on on potatoes in general.
1: Okay. Well, that would make
0: sense. Now, a second experiment they did had trouble really getting much of an answer. But what they looked into was... To the extent that apes prefer cooked food over raw food, why do they like it better? Is it the taste? Is it something about the texture? And so they experimented with a number of different great apes. They used chimps, bonobos, gorillas, and uh, orangutans. And they offered them choices between carrots in the following format. So you could have whole pieces of carrot, raw or cooked, grated carrot, raw or cooked, and mashed carrot, raw or cooked, And uh, they found that when carrots were whole, apes definitely preferred the cooked pieces to the raw pieces. Again, they they liked cooked better. But after that, things got more complicated. Uh, Apes generally did not seem to like the grated carrot in any format, and they preferred cooked whole carrots to raw grated or cooked grated. Uh, Preferences were less clear in the mashed condition, though they explain that some difference in results between the animal test groups for this experiment could have been influenced by neophobia, meaning fear of food in unfamiliar forms. Of course, you know, it's common among humans also is that we typically, we like foods that we're familiar with and we're a little, uh, sometimes we're a little hesitant about foods that are unfamiliar.
1: Yeah. Like for instance, the mashed carrot, how did it get mashed? Like (laughs) like what you know, if you were to encounter a mashed carrot in the wild, um, You know, (laughs) the possibilities are not all that appetizing.
0: Yeah. Okay, experiment three of four. Uh, In this one, the authors write, quote, "...this experiment provided great apes with choices between raw and cooked meat and raw and cooked apple, malus domestica. Uh, We controlled for neophobia in this experiment because one of these items was familiar in its raw form, apple, and the other was familiar in its cooked form, meat." Thus, this juxtaposed preference is determined by taste-slash-texture and those which would be determined by familiarity with the test items. And in this test, the apes definitely preferred cooked beef over raw beef, but they did not show a significant preference one way or the other about the apple. Um, Again, it's funny thinking about how much this does or does not overlap with with our own preferences, uh, though again... You know, human preferences, you always have to wonder about being a product of cultural familiarity. But they they say this shows that neophobia is not the only factor affecting preferences, because the apes were previously familiar only with raw apple, not cooked. And in this experiment, while they did not prefer the cooked apple, they basically showed no difference in preference between the two.
1: Mm. Now, I mean, in all of this, we have the saying about comparing apples and oranges. And here we're comparing apples and meat. Uh so I don't know, it, it feel, I mean, uh, not that there's really a way to improve on this. I'm not, I don't mean to criticize the, the study, but it's like there are, there are certain limitations in place with some of these comparisons, I feel.
0: What do you mean in that the, they're, they're documenting different preferences by types of food, like?
1: <laughs> well, like for, for instance, to say, well, we control for neophobia because uh, the, the raw form apple still looks like an apple and the, and the cooked meat still looks like the meat. Um, I don't know. I, I find that kind of a confusing rationale.
0: Oh no, no, I think you're misunderstanding what they were doing that they the neophobia thing was um, that they were familiar with cooked meat and with raw apple, but not with cooked apple or raw meat, and so they were trying to see um does this make any like does it just conform to in both cases, do they prefer whatever they're previously familiar with mm, okay in the case of meat, they did in the case of apple, not so much. But they did another test. Uh, The fourth experiment was a test for novelty. Uh, They said, quote, we tested chimpanzees that were not given meat as a regular part of their diet. And as far as was known, had never eaten cooked meat. And so they were offered raw and cooked beef. And again, they definitely preferred the cooked beef better than the raw. Hmm. So in the final discussion, they say, yeah, on average in the the foods they tested here – Apes liked cooked food better than raw food with some exceptions. They definitely prefer cooked beef, carrots, and sweet potatoes – they don't seem to have much of a preference, on average, between the cooked and raw forms of apple and white potato, and it seemed like in general just didn't really love white potato. Uh, and the, so they said neophobia might be a contributing factor to some of these results, but in experiments that tried to control for it, the apes still, on average, thought uh, were, were pretty cool with the cooked versions of food but finally the, this experiment had difficulty determining which characteristics of cooked foods the apes were responding to you know was it taste was it texture and so forth and i do think that's an interesting question like if if animals other than humans also prefer cooked food in most cases why is it like does it taste better to them is it like because it's softer to chew uh i don't know maybe, maybe we can come back to that but uh anyway the authors uh, were you saying- know i
1: mean it's difficult too because we have to stop and realize like when they're talking about the difference between a cooked and a raw white potato the cooked white potato in this experiment is also not buttered and salted and right. uh, you know and, and prepared in these other ways like we're just stripping it down to um to the basics of what cooking does to uh this particular substance um so yeah, like if I were to, if, you know, trying to set aside as much, uh, you know, human complexity as possible, if I were presented with just a plain white potato and a raw potato, I mean, I like to think I would still prefer the baked potato to the to the raw potato, <laughs> uh-huh. but without anything added to it, it's still not a very attractive offer. Like the 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 the, the potato is is something that is best. Um, consumed when there are uh, other things done to it, other yeah. seasonings, other styles of preparation, etc.
0: The human mind cannot comprehend the depths of blandness of, a, of an unseasoned potato.
1: <laughs> yeah. The carrot is really the one that, that throws me the most, you know? Like, yeah. Because p- part of me would guess that there's nothing quite like the, the raw crispness of the carrot. Like, the carrot mm-hmm. is crisp. We identify that with, uh, with freshness. The carrot is sweet. Um, like what is changed in cooking the carrot that 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 would um, that would make it more preferable? Uh, like is it just it's just softer? Is it therefore seem riper in that sense? And then how does that affect the sweetness of it? Would the sweetness be in any way enhanced by the cooking?
0: I think in general I, I can't speak to carrots in particular, but the authors actually address this. They say um, so they they talk about hypothesizing reasons that non-human animals would prefer cooked food over raw food. And uh, so one of the avenues they talk about is that cooking tends to cause chemical changes that increase the availability of flavor compounds that animals of all kinds seem to like. And so the the two main examples they offer are uh, available sugars and available glutamates. Now, sugars, that's pretty clear to understand. And we can know that from experience. I don't know about carrots, it probably conforms to this in carrots, but I think about like onions, like eating a raw onion versus eating a cooked onion. The cooked onion is so much sweeter, like the, yeah. you know, the amount of sugar you can taste in it is, I don't know, it it, it feels like it's uh, exponential above a raw onion.
1: And yeah, and that's that's a case too, where by cooking the onion, you're kind of uh, blunting its, um, its effects, like the chemical weaponry of the onion is diluted.
0: Yeah, the sulfur compounds and stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so so that's sugars. Apparently lots of foods uh, have more available sugars when you cook them. So they taste sweeter. Tons of different animals can differentiate the levels of sugar in a food they're eating and obviously prefer the thing that tastes like it's got more sugar in it because it is probably going to be more nutritionally dense. It has more calories per amount, same amount of food. Uh, the other thing is the available glutamates. Glutamates are – uh, you know, oh, does that ring a bell? Maybe it's in the phrase monosodium glutamate, the MSG mm-hmm. flavor, the umami flavor. Glutamates are, are uh, largely responsible for savory flavors that we associate with meat and and uh, and also things like tomatoes and hard cheeses like Parmesan and soy sauce. So those those glutamates are that delicious, savory, umami feeling. And it, that's not just for humans either. It turns out tons of animals, I think even some invertebrates Vertebrates can detect umami flavor through the presence of free glutamates, which are increased by cooking. Mm. And while I was reading about this, I did get really amused by the idea of like invert-I don't know which invertebrates exactly, but like do would lobsters really love soy sauce? Would like there be centipedes (laughs) who are going nuts for Parmesan cheese. Witness the dawning of a new
2: era in automotive luxury
0: During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com/deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition, and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com/deals. That's Alienware.com/deals.
1: Hey Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented.
2: Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated.
0: But anyway, okay, so cooking often increases the availability of sugars and glutamates. so that's a flavor f- increasing flavors that broadly lots of animals seem to like. and cooking tends to change the texture of food usually by making it softer and easier to chew. And of course that appeals to the natural laziness present in in all kinds of animals, not just us. So I think you could possibly argue that in a way cooking, By massively increasing the presence of taste and texture qualities that our bodies and brains are already naturally on the look for – Cooking could be viewed as a sort of ancient form of supernormal stimuli, like evolution-shaped animal appetites to seek out nutritionally dense things like sugar and glutamates, which we detect by taste. Cooking causes chemical reactions that make more of those molecules available. Cooking softens food, appealing to our natural laziness. We don't like to spend you know an hour chewing on some tough bit of something to get it down. Tender food is better than tough food. So it's kind of like it's it's taking all these things we naturally seek out in foods we would find find in our environment, but making them way more dependably present in all kinds of foods uh, but anyway the the authors of this study I was talking about they say that their their findings conform to other bits of pre-existing evidence that. Uh, many other non-human animals, on average, prefer cooked food over raw food. For instance, they cite a book by Brewer in 1978, alleging observations that chimpanzees in the wild would prefer to eat seeds that have been naturally cooked or at least heated by wildfires. This was in a mm. book by Brewer called The Chimpanzees of Mount uh, Asserik," And, uh, I th- oh, I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like that – it's kind of yeah, primordial cooking right there. And they cite findings
0: of, of preferences in other mammals. For example, Bradshaw et al. in 2000 found that once cats have been exposed to both raw and cooked meat, they tend to prefer the cooked version. And uh, they point to Ramirez in 1992, which found that rats preferred cooked starch over raw starch. Hmm. Uh, but I was looking at another study that actually asked a complementary question. So if the first question is, do great apes such as chimpanzees prefer cooked food over raw food? It seems in in the majority of cases they do. Um, the second question is, do they, in fact possess the ability to understand the cooking process? Would they, in theory, at least be able to cook for themselves? And the study that looked into this was by uh, Felix uh, Varnikin and Alexandra G. Rosati, published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, called Cognitive Capacities for Cooking in Chimpanzees. And this was 2015. And so the authors write here, quote, The transition to a cooked diet represents an important shift in human ecology and evolution. Cooking requires a set of sophisticated cognitive abilities, including causal reasoning, self-control, and anticipatory planning. Do humans uniquely possess the cognitive capacities needed to cook food? And oh man, when I when I was reading that line about uh, uh, about cooking requiring self-control and anticipatory planning, I I felt a little bit sheepish because it immediately made me think about the problem of. Uh, Rob, I don't know if you do do this too, but you're like cooking something and you just kind of keep snacking on it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you encounter that definitely with your more complicated recipes where, um, I don't know, say you, uh, like a shepherd's pie comes to mind. I recently made a a vegetarian shepherd's pie uh, for the the week of St. Patty's Day. And uh, yeah, once you've made like one part of it, like maybe you've made the the mashed potatoes or you've made the... uh, you know, the, the, the meat and the vegetable filling, uh, you might be tempted, especially if you're a little bit hungry, you might be t- tempted to taste and keep tasting those portions before everything <laughs> comes together as one. Uh, however, we tend, if we're making shepherd's pie, we're usually not tempted to eat the raw potatoes or to, right. or, or something like that before we begin cooking. But yeah, you know, like you've, you've
0: gone past the point where you're testing it for seasoning or whatever. It's just mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, nah,
1: maybe have a little another bite of this. Right. We're like, we're not going to go hog wild eating a bunch of uh, just raw flour right out of the bag. But of course, once the cookie dough is prepared, that is where the temptation may set in.
0: Well, it turns out some chimpanzees have the same problem, but they do better at these kinds of anticipation and delay of gratification tasks than you might expect. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, This study addressed these questions by performing some experiments with our closest living relatives, chimpanzees. Uh, The authors conducted a total of nine studies on chimpanzees living in a nature sanctuary in the Democratic Republic of Congo with the following results. Uh, They found, first of all, uh, they replicated the finding that chimpanzees in general prefer cooked foods over the same foods in their raw form. A second finding is that chimpanzees in some way do understand that food is changed by the cooking process. They, they can tell the difference, and uh, they understand something is happening when a raw food is exchanged for a cooked food. Uh, third, they will delay gratification in order to upgrade a, a raw piece of food to a cooked version of that same food. Fourth, they will give up possession of a raw piece of food already in hand in order to transform it into a cooked food. And then fifth, they will transport or store raw food in anticipation of later opportunities to exchange it for its cooked form. And an interesting note on the method, I was like, wait a minute, are they going to be giving uh, apes like an oven or (laughs) something? They did not do that. They actually – because, of course, they they didn't want to run the risk of the animals uh, burning or otherwise injuring themselves. Instead, they used a plastic box with a false bottom that would exchange a piece
1: of raw food for a piece of cooked food when shaken. Okay. I mean, there are some limitations there, obviously, but that that's essentially what an oven does, I guess. Right.
0: Well, obviously, this is not the exact same thing as the cooking process, but they're trying mm-hmm. to figure out, will the chimpanzees at least figure out that there is a process they can put raw food through and get cooked food out, and will they delay gratification to go through that process? Yeah. And the answer is broadly yes. Uh, The authors of the study write, quote, Together our results indicate that several of the fundamental psychological abilities necessary to engage in cooking may have been shared with the last common ancestor of apes and humans predating the control of fire. Uh, And uh, I was reading a write-up of this article in The Guardian by Hannah Devlin that had some good supplemental details. Uh, One thing I wanted to read, uh, this paragraph definitely made me say all buddy out loud. It was, quote, the chimps continued to opt for the cooked option 60% of the time when they had to carry the food some distance in order to place it in the, quote, oven. Although since they often carried it in their mouths, this was a challenge, and they sometimes appeared to eat the food on the way, <laughs> quote, almost by accident. Oh. I sympathize with that. You, you know, the best of intentions. You know, sometimes that, that sweet potato is in your mouth, and you're just going to start chewing. Uh, The other thing was that in terms of hoarding raw ingredients in the hopes that they could later be exchanged for cooked foods, uh, chimps in some cases hoarded up to 28 slices of sweet potato. Uh, And uh, Varnikin said to The Guardian, quote, delayed gratification is a problem for us as well. We also have a tendency to nibble at food before we finish cooking. So that's exactly what we were talking about.
1: And they don't even have excuses for it. Like, you know, they can't ration, use the rationale, well, I'm, I'm, I need to taste it to make sure that the flavor profile is appropriate. I need to make sure I don't need to add more salt or pepper.
0: Right. But while well, I think this is interesting and it's informative to the question of, of when humans first started cooking their food and what effects that may have had on, on uh, our ancestors one to two million years ago, Uh, Of course, the fact remains that there are no widely observed natural instances of animals in their natural habitat cooking foods by applying heat. But as we said earlier, heating is not the only form of cooking. Humans do all kinds of things to food that fall under the umbrella of cooking or cuisine that are unrelated to heat. So we take raw or cooked food items and we wash them, or we age them, or we ferment them, or we season them, we butcher them in certain ways, we skewer them, or cut them up in special ways, we combine them together in interesting ways, and it's uh, frankly surprising how many of these culinary manipulations and modifications that humans do are mirrored at some level throughout the animal world, and so I thought that's what we could explore for the remainder of this series, all the different ways that animals cook. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals.
1: Hey, Sarah. I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. Oh! Gee, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented.
2: Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated.
0: And uh, you had some really interesting examples, I think, that had to do with uh, maybe what could broadly be called some form of butchering or skewering of food as a preparation method.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a couple of, of good examples here. Um, and, and, uh, and one of them, I think, is a pretty, pretty obvious one. Let's start with an amusing one, but perhaps the less involved one. And that is the, the case of the lammergeier or bearded vulture. So these birds are found in parts of Africa and Eurasia, and these birds are known for their amazing ability to eat and digest bones. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's one of the reasons this is a great example bird to start with, because it already has robust um, anatomical features and internal abilities when it comes to the processing of of what is you know arguably a very difficult food they're they're eating bones uh but they have you know they have these wonderful bites they can bite through brittle bones they can swallow large chunks of bones and their digestive system can handle it um and yet there are still going to be challenges that are too great for them to handle without a little ingenuity um and uh, and so basically, they have a butchering challenge ahead of them. You know, butchering is what we do when we we have a carcass and we don't just want to eat from the carcass. We can't cook the whole carcass. We have to take things apart, remove things that are inedible or are not desired or used for at another time or for another purpose. Uh, you know, all, all the various reasons you have to take apart a, a carcass. Um, uh, yeah, and
0: in fact, external processing of animal carcasses is hypo- it's not known for sure, but it is hypothesized to be one of the earliest drivers of tool use in humans. that yeah you know, why would a human start using a flat rock as a cutting surface, maybe to get meat and, and tough hide parts and stuff off of an animal kill?
1: Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that on the show in the past. When when talking about uh, uh, early tool use and evidence of how those tools are being used, you know, we can look for those signs um, on the bones of them having been scraped. Uh, In some cases, it's also uh, evidence of of cannibalism taking place um, in a given people versus, uh, you know, just mere, um, you know, murder or warfare. Oh, because of the signs of tool use on the bones, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is a case where the Lammergeier is going to occasionally find some chunks of bone that are too big to handle. They need to butcher it. They need to take it apart. Uh, but uh, what, what tools are available to them? Well, uh, luckily, they can, they can pick up a pretty big bone. I think, uh, I think they can basically take off with something equal to their own weight. Um, so they've developed the practice of taking larger bones up high into the air and then dropping them onto rocks in order to break them open or shatter them. Uh, sometimes it takes more than one try, and it's, uh, it's also a learn tactic. So generally, it takes around seven years for uh, one of these birds t- to, to master it, and you'll find examples of immature birds uh, just dropping bones incorrectly. Like they haven't really figured out exactly where you're supposed to drop them or, or when you release them, uh, but they'll get there. Uh, they'll eventually learn it, and it will open up uh, new possibilities to them uh, in terms of what they can eat. Oh, that's my second all-buddy of the episode, imagining (laughs) the the vultures dropping the bones wrong. It's like, yeah, nice job, Ted. Now, they sometimes um, uh, prey on on live creatures as well. It's not just bones. And probably one of the more um, alarming and interesting examples is that of the tortoise. They may fly up with a tortoise that, again, it has to be a tortoise they can physically carry up. Uh, But then they can drop that as well, treat it like... An oversized bone in attempt to bust through those bony defenses. And uh, this may ring a bell for, for some of you out there because this is, of course, how the Greek father of tragedy, Aeschylus, was said to have died in 458 BCE. Uh, this, according to the two accounts uh, by um, uh, Valerius Maximus and our old friend Pliny the Elder. Now, this may well just be a story we have to drive home, uh, but it, it basically goes like this. Uh, Aeschylus uh, goes uh, to an oracle. He receives a prophecy that he will, he will one day be killed by a falling object. So he's a smart guy. He says, well, nothing can fall on me if I'm outdoors. So he spends more and more time outdoors because, yeah, there's, nothing's going to fall from the roof. There are no shelves. Sounds yeah, like a pretty yeah. safe bet. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like if there's an earthquake,
0: where do you want to be? Get
1: away from buildings. You're
0: going to be out in the middle of a field.
1: Right. Unfortunately, he is in the territory of the lammergeier, or uh, it's thought that this may, may be referring to Lammergeiers. Um Suddenly, a great bird flies overhead. That great bird has uh, a tortoise in its clutches, and it mistakes uh, Aeschylus's head for a hard rock. Uh, <laughs> A lot of times he's depicted as being, you know, bald on top. And Uh so uh, the the bird drops the tortoise on him, killing him instantly. Um, Again, possibly just a misunderstanding or an entertaining tale. Um, But uh, you'll find various accounts of deaths like this from the ancient world where you, you, you have to stop and ask, did they really die like this? Or is this just a nice story? This is the story that developed about their death. If true, he died
0: by accidentally running afoul of an avian butchery process. Yes. <laughs> it's some I, I, I'm seeing vague connections to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But,
1: uh. <laughs> now, when it comes to avian butchery, uh, the best example, of course, is the Shrike. Now, if you've never seen a Shrike, uh, look up pictures of them. But they're they're generally, I mean— for me, they're an unimpressive looking bird. Uh, this is going to v- be different for you depending on how into birds you are and if you're a board, bird watcher, et cetera. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, when you when you compare what they look like with what they do, uh, they don't look quite as impressive, in my opinion, uh, because what they do is very impressive. Uh, there are 34 species of shrike in 4 genera in the family uh, Lanidae. And if you're, uh, yeah, if you're not a bird enthusiast or a bird watcher, Uh, You might just look at a shrike and say, well, that looks like a bird. But it's not what they look like. It's what they do. And and basically what they do is they engage in a kind of a complex butchery situation. That's why we call them butcher birds. Uh, Lanidae is derived from the Latin uh, lanius, which means butcher. So they don't wear little uh, aprons or, uh, you know, wrap morsels of meat in white butcher's paper. Uh, but what they do is they take insects and even small vertebrates that they kill and they impale them onto thorns like little Vlad Draculas. Wow. And uh, by the way their method it's you know it's one thing to get uh, those uh, you know various bugs and insects but uh, their method of killing small rodents is actually quite brutal uh, as pointed out by Hannah Waters in a 2018 article for the Audubon Society quote they grasp mice by the neck with their pointed beak pinch the spinal cord to induce paralysis and then vigorously shake their prey with enough force to break its neck
0: oh that's interesting cuz it's like a bird version of a a uh common predatory tactic i think used by like some big cats right i, mean, I yeah. think we talked about this with mary roach uh, in in her book talking about uh, various kinds of big predatory cats that will attempt to to bite along the back of the neck which is h- how their characteristic attacks are identified in humans
1: yeah uh, i noticed this when i watched all the Jurassic Park movies with my son uh, a year or so ago. Well, I forget which one it was in, but there's one in particular where you see the the dinosaurs, uh, the, the 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 raptors in particular, um, killing by uh, by clamping onto the back of the neck, which I thought was a nice touch.
0: So anyway, but no okay. wait, well, no I, I but I've got a question. Okay, so yeah. this seems gratuitous. The the bird just takes its prey, which. A normal bird would, would just capture and then kill and then eat. But this bird impales it on a thorn on a plant. Why do we have any idea like what the purpose of this is?
1: Uh, yeah. And there seem to be three different reasons. Uh, and, and, I, and I do have to acknowledge that, yes, this is exactly, you mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre earlier. This is exactly what happens in one of the kills in TCM. Uh, he, uh, cracks a victim on the head, uh, you know, and take takes her out, but then he sticks her onto a, on a meat hook, uh, and that's that's basically what the shrike is doing. So there are three different reasons to do this that um, that researchers have identified. One, and this is pretty neat, and this is uh, this is is that it's t- about tearing the meat. Once, an, let's say an insect is impaled on that thorn, you can then pull on the creature's body, and you can rip it, cut it into smaller pieces. So it's
0: leverage. It allows yeah. you to get better leverage on the on, for butchering the insect body.
1: Right. It's you know, it's not something we really do because we you know we can use farm you know all these other tools. But imagine if you didn't have tools. If the thorn was the only tool. Um, that's ex- particularly. I mean, that's exactly the situation that the bird is in. Uh, the next uh, reason to, for the shrike to put uh, something on the, on, the, on the thorn is just as a means of storing the meat. Uneaten portions of the meat can be left on the thorns, and the bird can return later to eat some more. Mm, okay,
0: as opposed to like storing it on the ground where something else is more likely to come along and take it.
1: Right. And then finally, this is I think probably the most interesting of the three, and one that um, I, I wasn't really familiar with. I was I, I knew about shrikes and about the uh, you know category one and two here, but the third reason is to potentially detoxify the meat, mm. um, and this is where we get more specific with this, with some of the the prey species that are targeted. Uh, it's a way of processing the meat of a toxic prey animal. Um, so that the bird can then eat it. So the bird will leave a body on the spike for like a period of one to two days, allowing the toxins in the body to degrade to the point where it can be safely eaten.
0: Okay, so this might be the case in like an insect that has a poison within its body that has a fairly short chemical half-life, and it's if it's not replenished by the live animal's body,
1: it's going to eventually uh, degrade over time? Exactly. Yeah, and some, for some specific examples, uh, the loggerhead shrike does this with Luber grasshoppers, as well as with the species of beetle and moth. And great gray shrikes have been observed to do this with black cone-headed grasshoppers. Mm. So so yeah, the, the shrike is is fascinating, not only because there's something kind of grisly and wonderful about what it does, uh, but yeah, by doing these things, Three things with its practice. Uh, it's engaging in, a, in, in several different things that that we do uh, with our with our cooking process. You know, the butchery of the meat, uh, the butcher, or the, just the the taking apart of a given uh, element, uh, the storing of that element, and then detoxifying that element. Now, we tend to we do this in a number of different ways. It may be cooking something and the, the cooking process, the heating process itself destroys the toxins. It also may be, and we've touched on this before in our Dangerous Food series, it may also be uh, about removing uh, parts of the body or parts of the plant that would otherwise be toxic to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, but we have just specific cases of the sh- of the shrike carrying this out just by leaving it on the thorn long enough. Well, I'm impressed. Yes, they are impressive creatures.
0: All right, well, we need to wrap up part one here, but we're going to be back next time with more of the, uh, the, quote, cooking or otherwise, you know, meal prep, cuisine behaviors of non-human animals. Definitely want to talk about some interesting behaviors that have been called washing, but maybe uh, more obscure in nature than that.
1: Yeah, so in some cases, at least, it's kind of mysterious, and we'll, we'll get into, into all of that, plus, uh, plus other examples. Uh, In the meantime, certainly write in. Let us know uh, what you think about uh, what we discussed here today, Uh, and especially if you have any uh, direct experience with this. Have you observed the shrikes in the wild? Have uh, Lammergeier's uh, dropped tortoises uh, at you, and you've luckily been able to get a less rocky-looking hat over your head just in time? Uh, do you prefer know. raw potatoes to cooked? <laughs> oh yeah yeah the, i mean I, everybody's gonna have some uh, insight on all of that so uh yeah write in let us know we'd love to hear from you in the meantime if you would like to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind core episodes published on two season thursdays on monday we do a listener mail on wednesday we do a short form uh monster fact or artifact episode and on fridays we do weird house cinema that's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury...